gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. I am Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Rachel Miller. And we're going to kind of, I think September is um, becoming a theme, which sometimes we have themes, and we'll be moving on to other subjects soon. But some of the topics that we're talking about are things that we've gotten emails saying, hey, can you talk about this? And or (laughs) there are things that I have wanted to talk about, things that are talked about in the Theology Gals group and um, things that people write about. And uh, Today, we're, we're going to talk about kind of the themes of masculine and feminine in, in the church. And I'm sure most people have seen even some of the articles that are written out there. You'll see um, people will speculate about why there's more women in church and less men. And they'll say it's because worship has become more feminine. Um, I, there's whole books written that talk about that. And and some other things. So, we'll talk about masculine and feminine piety. So, are these things we're gonna we're gonna talk about that today? Uh, Rachel, you've got a whole section in your book where you kind of talk about um, these things. Yeah, I do. Uh, actually, there's a couple places that I talk about it in the book because I wanted to talk about, you know, in, in talking about men and women in marriage, church, and society, you have to get into you know what does it mean to be a man or a woman in church. And, you know, you know, the first thing that we're going to say, and this is something that we, we, te- we seem to reiterate every time we talk about these discussions, um, we're not talking about who should be ordained leaders in the church. We, we agree that qualified men should be the ordained leaders in church. So we're talking about is how uh, lay men and women, regular men and women in church, how we should use our gifts, how we should be involved in the life of the church outside leadership. I'm really glad that you said that because um, I had seen some misrepresentations of what we uh, said last week. And in fact, 
Um, this maybe wasn't directly connected to last week, but there was some speculation. There was a post in a group, and they said that the post was, should women um, be up in front on Sunday morning reading scripture? And um, I've spent a lot of time in the OPC, and I'm pretty sure it's maybe even in the Book of Church Order that it's the ordained officers that lead worship. So it's not men or women. It's um, ordained officers or not ordained officers. That's the distinction. Um, and all of these speculations, well, since um, theology gals don't think women are more easily deceived, then they must think women should be able to do all of these things. And we have said over and over that we think it's only qualified men that are called to be pastors and elders. So, um, exactly. And we continue to affirm that. But um, the other thing I we're not going to talk a lot about this, but I'm going to mention it. When we talk about worship, I always want to point people back to our reform standards. And it's our reform standards which um, which inform us, you know, and they're based on scripture. We talk about things like the regulative principle of worship. The reform confessions don't talk about masculine and feminine worship. They talk about worship. They talk about how God says he is to be worshiped by all people of God, which includes both men and women. So let's start, and we did this a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's a good a good thing to um, kind of remind everybody about, and that is what does masculine and feminine even mean? Because I think there's so many misunderstandings about that, and I would love you to talk about that. In my book, I talk about how we use the terms masculine and feminine because, you know, of course, I affirm that there are, uh, God created two genders. There are men and there are women. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, you know, I don't believe that uh, men can become women. I don't believe that women become men, you know, biologically, as we are born, we are men and women. And so then what I do as a woman is feminine. What my husband does as a man is masculine. But beyond that, there are some cultural um, understandings understandings and definitions of what it means to be masculine and feminine and it's like what does what do men and women typically do look like behave like in our culture and our society and and those things do vary from culture to culture from over over time those things uh you know in in the 1700s in france men wore long curly wigs and heels and makeup and that was not considered feminine. That was, those were the men. Um, but that would not be considered particularly masculine in our culture. Those things are culturally based. So my concern with how we describe masculine and feminine is that we always go back to scripture and that our definitions, our descriptions of masculine and feminine should never go against what scripture teaches, uh, but they should also always include uh, in consideration of the diversity of expression in scripture so that, you know, a man who is like Jacob and a man who is like Esau or a man who's like David or a man who's like Solomon, each man would be considered masculine by biblical standards. Um, for women, you know, a woman who is like Deborah and a woman who is like Esther uh, are still both feminine. And I think that's important to consider as we talk about masculine and feminine in the church. 
You know, it's interesting the sorts of things um, that I'll see discussion or read articles or hear podcasts that people will automatically attribute to a man or a woman. And uh, I had a conversation. It was actually in the Facebook group about our last episode. And uh, one of the girls said that uh, she's a very well-read, intellectual woman. And she said that uh, people will sometimes say to her, you think more like a man. And she says, no, I think like myself and I'm a woman. And it's interesting just even some of the ways that people want to attribute masculine and feminine, the sorts of things that they want to attribute that to. Yes, absolutely. And you see that going back to, um, you know, older cultures. We've always had these, um, this list, if you will, that these things are masculine, these virtues, these characteristics, and these characteristics and virtues are feminine. And my, beyond, you know, making sure that we aren't going beyond scripture or against scripture, my concern too is that when you take a list of characteristics and a list of uh, virtues, if you will, and all the ones that are really highly prized and desirable, you put those on the masculine side. And all the ones that are lesser or are would be considered um, a downgrade, you put those on the feminine side. Um, that's a problem because men and women, each men and women, are made in the image of God, not as the men have half the image and women have the other half. And if you put them together, then we get the image of God. But every man and woman is made in the image of God. So all of us have characteristics that are um, to be admired and to be um, proud of. And so I, I think it's really important that we not make that kind of distinction where, you know, men get all the, the good characteristics and women get the ones that, well, they're okay, but no one really wants them. Right. Well, some, some people may be familiar with um, a Pew Research um, study that found that more women – 53% than men, 43, I mean, 46% um, attended church on a weekly basis. And there has been countless articles and books and all sorts of things um, trying to speculate about why this is. And I think that's driven some of this, you know, this speculation on should we have a more masculine church so we can attract more men? The, uh, one of the things I've seen a lot is, well, men don't sing in church because the, the songs are too feminine. So we need more masculine worship. <laughs> so Right. And what, is it, what exactly does that look like? You know, if you say that the worship should look masculine or feel masculine, you know, what is that, you know? Right. So, so now, now feminine music is, um, is, is more classical and masculine is more rock or some sort of thing like that. Which is baffling to me because there's also the discussions about, you know, the, the typical or stereotypical worship leader in, in skinny jeans and, and, you know, whatever, and whether or not that's masculine enough. Right. But, they're leading rock music, but they don't dress right to be masculine. So there's still, there's so many variables and depending on the person to say, this is what it means to be, have masculine worship. Well, and I think one of the things too, and we, we see a lot of this, Michael Horton has actually written about it too. The, we saw it with Driscoll. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so what we saw was, okay, the men need to be more manly and then they're going to go in and they're going to lead their families better if they're more manly and we're going to make church more masculine so that the men become more manly. You, you know, the sort of thing I'm talking about, right? Right. And so the Driscoll, I think it's the, it's the ultimate fighting Jesus that we need that. I think that's what he called it. The, you know, the muscles right. and the tough. Yeah. And so what do you think? I mean, cause I, if you really think through why are more women in church than men, there's probably many things that play into it. Well, it, it has, there are a lot of reasons why. And part of it does go back to our history, what we've talked about before about the connection we have to the Victorian era. And during the Victorian era in particular, uh, religion and piety became um, feminine virtues, so that it, which allowed men to take take their part and to do business in, in the dirty world of business and politics. And so women upheld the standards of, of purity and, and piety um, and men could go get dirty and then come back to the house where they would be refreshed and restored. And, um, but in that time, everything associated with religion. So going to church, being in church, um, uh, you know, even, singing hymns and reading scripture and all of these things became considered uh, feminine. And so even from that point, there were a lot of men who would say, you know, they didn't, they weren't part of church. They weren't religious. They weren't, um, you know, they weren't focusing on their faith because that was a, that's what women did. And it's even interesting to see that there were complaints during the Victorian era by men. Uh, and you have the beginning of a movement for, um, they called it muscular Christianity, uh, even back in the 1800s. Um, let's see. I think it was a, I have a quote from it from Century Magazine, uh, 1896. They called for a vigorous, robust, muscular Christianity, uh, Christianity which showed the character and manliness of Christ, um, that Jesus would be, not be a prince of peace at any price. This is the enforcer. Um, and it is very similar to what you saw in Mark Driscoll's uh, discussions about men and church and masculinity and what Jesus would be like. While you were talking, I was thinking about um, something that um, a men's conference I heard about. <laughs> and it was supposed to motivate the men. And so we got to do all these manly things. And some of the things I, I, I probably, it might reveal too much if I say that some of the things that they did, but I was just perplexed by the whole thing. There is, I mean, there are, there are whole, like you said, there are books that have been written on um, why men don't want to worship or why men aren't going to church or how to attract men to church and uh, whole movements on getting men involved in church again. And, um, you know, and, you know, promise keepers was that. They were, and others too. There've been others since then, you know, that have done that, uh, had that, had that, excuse me, had that as their focus. But, you know, I'd be the first to say, I think men should be involved in church. I think it's a good goal to have men involved in church. Yes. Important. We should also have women involved in church. You know, I, I think all of us should be encouraged to be active in our churches and involved in, um, you know, personal uh, devotion and prayer and scripture reading so that uh, our faith is a serious thing to us. And that should not be a, a feminine thing. But I don't think we need to do something about church itself or worship to make it, you know, quote unquote, masculine so that men will come to church. That's not, that's not the answer. 
What are some of the examples that people think that should, I mean, we've talked about them a little bit, but what are some of the examples that people think would make a masculine church or a feminine church? One place I saw talked about um, that pastors being masculine would mean that they would be, uh, they shouldn't be um, overly verbal. They shouldn't be too sensitive or expressive with emotions um, that they should have. And I think the quote was the trappings of manhood. Uh, Another talked about um, men, men who think like men and act like men and fulfill their their calling to be men, um, which is not very descriptive, but again, it's this this idea of manly men doing manly things. Um, one article I read talked about masculine piety and described it as having uh, or focusing on uh, truth instead of relationships, uh, so that um, dominion, self sacrifice duty, war, these are the themes that from scripture that men would enjoy and appreciate. And so in that article, it talked about that the music should be um, that kind of warlike, uh, you know, the pounding d- drums and the heavy guitar music to encourage men to want to sing. And again, I, I'm kind of at a loss for where scripture says, you know, That's when, what I was when you worship worship as men in this way, you know? Well, that that's exactly what I've been thinking about this week is if you look at the exhortations in scripture, mm-hmm. they are to the people of God. Um, yes. You know, they're, they're throughout scripture. They are to the people of God. Yes. There are some specific exhortations to, to husbands, wives, children, and those sorts of things. But most of what we see is to the people of God. Not um, okay. Here's what the here's some masculine piety that the men should exhibit, and some feminine piety over here. You know, I, I make the point uh, in my book that you, you don't have the the fruit of the spirit for women, and the armor of God is for men, right? You, both, all Christians, yes, are called to both. And you know, someone asked me, well, well, who does that? Who says that the fruit of the spirits for women and the armor of God's for men? And I don't know that anyone has said specifically, like, ah, oh, yes, this is for women and this is for men. But it is in these kinds of discussions when you say, you know, when you talk about gentleness and um, um, that kindness, that those kinds of traits are are things that women should embody, but they don't talk much about it for men. And when you have the, you know, we need to act like men and, and focus on on war and battle and armor, and, you know, that's what men do. But the armor of God is for me, and as well as the fruit of the Spirit. And the armor of, the fruit of the Spirit is for my husband, as well as the armor of God. And, you know, we need both. Right. And we teach the fruit of the Spirit to our boys. And the armor of God. Um, you know, Rachel and I both have all sons, you know, that we're raising. And and these are the things that we, we teach to our to our children. I'm gonna just list just some of the examples out there of what we're talking about. Um there's a, a quote from Craig Thompson, uh, and it's 
his book is called Reaching Men from the Pulpit. Masculinity should ooze out of our lives and out of our sermons. And, you know, that that one specifically, I'm thinking, well, what about the women? So now the sermons should be masculine? Well, there is. And there was even a place that I, I read where a woman was talking about the church that she grew up with, and they were even told the sermon is for the men. Oh, wow. That's yeah. just crazy. And so then the idea then is that, you know, you teach the men and then there's this trickle down effect that then the men, you know, it, it, through their own lives and through their what they do with their families then the women and the children learn from that. But where does that leave the singles in our church and the widows and anyone else? And why should the, the men be the only one who are taught? And that's not the picture that scripture gives us either. Not at all. And I've seen in some circles this idea, um, I mean, I've read somebody that said that the women are supposed to learn spiritually primarily from their husbands, that they're they're the ones that should be. So I think it's that same sort of idea. Then the men are learning from the pastors, and then the women are learning from the husbands. And then I'm you know, and then we really are just the throw pillows at church, like you talk about. I think the one of the things I've seen um, was that women or husbands are called to be, I think, resident theologian in their home, which I think men should know their theology, that we should all be good theologians. But it doesn't give any room for the difference in interests and abilities so that if a woman who has been a Christian for many, many years marries a man who is a new believer, she may know a lot more than him and may be the one that he goes to and asks questions. And that's not wrong. That was, that was my own situation. Um, I grew up in the church and my, my husband grew up in a liberal church and didn't ever study scripture and became a Christian at 19. And when we were dating, one of the things that he was attracted to in me was my love for theology. Mm-hmm. He didn't think, oh, she's going to usurp my authority by knowing a little bit more. That, because there's almost that idea that's given, like a, a wife shouldn't know more than her husband. I've even seen, you know, because the idea in a lot of these circles is that, you know, you go from your father's authority to your husband's authority when you get married. So a woman who was engaged was told, you know, she went to her dad to ask him a question about theology and, and he told her, well, you should ask your husband, your fiance now, because he's the one who's going to be determining what you know and believe. And, and I'm thinking, but shouldn't all theology, if it's good theology, we should all be thinking along the same lines. And do I change my theology because my husband's is different from my father's? There's people that believe that, um, that believe that you must believe exactly what your husband believes. But what if your husband is in error? Right. Well, we would hope that we're in agreement, right? Right. You you would want to be. Yes, absolutely. And I think my husband and I are on, on everything theological, but. Right. Mine too. Me too. But still, I mean. Yeah. Why, why do we assume that? There is never a place for women to have more insight or knowledge or be able to say, you know, I think, you know, you're, that's wrong. You know, I think or to have your own opinions and to have your own understanding of scripture and to be able to say, this is what I believe and why. You know, even if it is just you, you're discussing it out together, you know. Yes. You should be able to do that together. And yeah, when my husband and I got married, we were credo Baptists, even though we were 
attending a Presbyterian church. And we studied baptism together. And um, I was convinced first, and um, we continued to talk and study, and I prayed, and he eventually uh, embraced pedo-baptism, and our kids were baptized. But it was a, it was good for us, actually, to study that together. Well, that happened with my folks. My, my mom was raised Presbyterian. My dad was raised Baptist, and they were, my dad was in seminary um, after I was born, and the, a Baptist seminary, and the discussions at the time were about, um, you know, the five points of Calvinism and, uh, and all of those uh, kind of reformed-ish ideas that were going through the Baptist seminaries. And my dad went from arguing it from the side against to realizing one day that he was arguing for it, that he had changed his mind. Uh, and, but it was, you know, my mom had already, already come to the conclusion that, you know, Calvinism that reformed were correct. She already knew. And in these discussions is when my dad uh, changed his mind, but everybody was discussing it everywhere. So it was, you know, men, women, everybody, these were the discussions and, you know, that's healthy discussion and growth that we should have. Yeah. And some, Sometimes I can think throughout my marriage where sometimes my husband and I have been faced with some theological view, you know, being discussed in our church and whatnot. And we we really have grown from our discussions with one another mm-hmm. on some of those on some of those things. You mentioned earlier about um, masculine piety, and um, there's a a quote here from from Doug Wilson, a standard of feminine piety has been accepted as normative in the church as the standard for all the saints, both men and women. We have failed because we have forgotten what masculine piety even looks like. And again, I'm having a hard time where is this in scripture where we have a distinction between between masculine and feminine piety. We we have um, piety in scripture is what we see. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, what you see in a lot of these discussions is that the logic goes that, you know, Christ is a man and is therefore the example of perfect masculinity and that pastors represent Christ to the church. So then pastors and men in general need to be models of masculinity because that will attract other men. And it's, it's a dangerous logical thread because, you know, if Christ is, who is, of course, yes, Christ is a man, but if he is the example only of pers- per- perfect masculinity and not the example of perfect humanity, then how is he the mediator for us as women? How is he the example of who we are to be like as women? We, who are women supposed to emulate? Yeah, and think about who Christ was too. Think of some of that as feminine. I mean, they wouldn't say that, but well, he he talks about you know the word that is used over and over again in Scripture of gentleness. Yeah, right? that's what Christ I was thinking. Describes of. himself as gentle, right? right? And he talks about um, gathering uh, like a hen, right? Like a mother hen, and so the um, the imagery in Scripture. You know, while I have no, I'm not denying or disagreeing or arguing against, you know, God the Father and using masculine terms, you know, pronouns in discussing God, 
you know, God uses imagery that is both masculine and feminine in describing his uh, love and care and his work with us as his people. Absolutely. You know, the imagery for the church itself, and we are called the bride of Christ. So the church is a feminine metaphor. Um, but that doesn't mean that the church should be feminine any more than it should be masculine. You know, we should be um, God honoring. Rachel, what are some of the problems that that we're seeing now because of this? And because I, I think there's got to be negative consequences of of this sort of thing. I mean, even the idea that um, you know that the sermon is for the is for the men, for instance. You know what? And some of these different things. What are some of the negative consequences? Um, you know, we talked about uh, in previous episodes when, when I've talked about um, historically what happened with viewing men and women in, in the, the separate spheres so that men have the, the public sphere and women have the private sphere. But it, it even it ends up um, running in the church or, or influencing how men and women in the church work together so that men and women often operate on distinctly separate tracks within the church. So you have um, you know, different Bible studies, different ministries, you know, even have different study Bibles marketed to men and women. And it's not that there's anything wrong or inappropriate about having a men's ministry or a women's ministry, but when the content of what you're teaching is so different so that, you know, you know, women are focusing on and, and only being taught about how to be good wives and mothers and about, um, uh, hospitality and um, you know meal ministry and help taking care of the children in the church and you know men are being given uh, doctrine and theological training on how to be leaders even if they aren't in leadership um, you know you have very separate men and women so that there's not a lot of overlap in and who they are in the church and it doesn't do justice to uh, the gifts and abilities that men and women may have. You know, I, I think I said before that if you had a man who's really good at, at cooking and likes to make meals, he should be able to do that as part of his service in the church. And if you have a woman who's really good at um, accounting and handling the books, you know, she should be asked to help, help with that in the church. You know, so that, or even if a woman likes to make, likes to do, um, has a gift at doing, uh, repairs and um, construction and and the kind of things that are often you know that's what the men do you know it shouldn't be any problem that she's helping in those ways that are her gifts and those separate tracks then lead to um, disunity in the body so that the men and women are not functioning together as the body of Christ but separately and not in a way that um, supports and builds each other up. Yeah, I was thinking that some of some of this discussion, I think it really even discounts, you know, different personalities and the, and the different gifts like you were talking about. And um, I was reminded as you were talking about, you know, if a man is gifted at cooking, I, I have a son that I, I consider myself to be a pretty good cook, but he is, he makes me look not good. <laughs> um, he he is an excellent cook. In fact, um, so much so that he you know applied to the culinary institute, and he's now rethinking about whether that's the direction he wants to go. But he is just an excellent cook. I mean, I I can if we're at the end of the groceries, I can look and 
say, I'm not sure what to make. And he'll look and go, oh, okay, I know what to make. And he'll just come up with something and it's amazing. But I, I, I um, lost a baby between my third and, and fourth um, boys. And, you know, it was a difficult time. And our pastor at the time, he made us a meal and came over and, and ate the meal with us. And, and then with his, his wife was going to school at the time. And then his, his wife was really, really good at um, like uh, doing different, um, I'm not sure what the word would be, but, but she and I went and tore down one of the rooms in the church, you know, we did the demolition and, um, and different things like that. And, and, it, people would almost put those into masculine feminine categories, but what we were doing was the church working together in right. in various ways. Right. Based on gifts and uh, season of life and needs yes. and, you know, all of the things that should be a part of, of the decisions that we make and how we're used in the church. Right. And that's, and I think the picture in scripture that we get is, is that, that we work together in those ways. There are no verses that say some of these things that are being portrayed. Right. My concern, and we talked about this um, last week about women being considered easily deceived, is that when women enjoy reading and discussing theology uh, or writing and talking about theology um, in podcasts or, or whatever, um, you know, sometimes they're treated with suspicion, like, well, why are you interested in this? What, you know, what are you doing? What do you, why do you want to talk about this? You know, this is, this isn't for you to talk about, or are you trying to lead us in a particular way or, or usurp authority in the church? The other way is they're treated with, uh, or dismissed, right? Like, well, you know, you're just a woman. It doesn't really matter what you think. And, you know, it's a shame because there are a lot of women out there with various gifts, uh, spiritual gifts that can be used in the church. And if we aren't, um, if we aren't utilizing them, it's to the detriment of the church. Yeah, and that's actually one way that I have seen it play out, where theology is for the men. Right. And um, you know, thankfully, I've been in churches where it's not been like that, but I hear a lot of stories you know, like women that will say, well, the women's Bible study is just this, you know, fluffy book. And I'd really like their, they want to encourage the, the women at their church to do something more theological, for instance. Mm-hmm. And th- it's not uncommon. It's not uncommon. Just go to, uh, there's not many local Christian bookstores, but if there was, uh, go on look Amazon. On yeah, yeah. And look at what sorts of books are for women mm-hmm. and what sorts of books are for men. A couple of years ago, um, teal was the color. So all the w- books for women were teal. Uh, <laughs> I think the books for men that year were maroon. And I couldn't figure out what, why, <laughs> why that was the decision. But yes, the books were teal. And the books are often floral and they have script font. And those things tell you it's a safe book for women. And that, that is so true because those are automatically masculine and feminine. Well, depending on the year, I guess, what colors depending would on the be. Year. Exactly. What colors would be masculine <laughs> and feminine? Um, and you believe that pink was originally a masculine color because well, I know that's red. what. Yeah, I know. Um, my my um, my grandma used to tell me that um, they that the clothes that they had for their kids mm-hmm. they put on whichever sex they had. So um, she said, "I remember." 
you know, she had all daughters, but she said, I remember um, my sisters putting their sons in in clothes that today people would have said, oh, that would only be for, you know, a, a girl. You should look up baby pictures of, I think it's Theodore Roosevelt would be a good one. You can find mm -hmm. him online and he is in a white frilly dress yes. as a young boy, uh -huh. like a baby, a young boy with curly hair. looks like a little girl. Yes. But all kids were dressed that way, boy or girl. At the right. Time. Yep. And that's, that's what my grandma told me. She said that, you know, even the, the boys would have dresses on. Yeah. So, and, it, and if you think about during the depression, okay, they don't exactly have money to go buy. Think about my great grandparents who had nine children. They did not, even though they were um, more well off than some of their um, neighbors and whatnot, they still um, didn't have money to go and buy a separate wardrobe, whether they had uh, a boy or a girl that time. The clothes got passed down. They both wore them. And, and, and dresses are... are we're easier for dealing with babies. It's the same reason that we use like, you know, the, um, the baby nightgowns when babies are little yep. or everybody wears Those are my favorite <laughs> getting out of for diaper changes in the middle of the night. Yep. It's it, similar issues were, were at play there. It wasn't that they wanted their boys to look like girls. You know, there, it was just the way they did things. Yeah. And thing, and some of, uh, and you talk about this in your book. So some of these things are just cultural. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's where, you know, I'm not saying we should go back and do things the way they did them. You know, I'm not right. saying that was why. I'm just, you have to recognize that what's considered appropriately appropriate according to the culture is a moving target. And, um, you know, just like we would stand against uh, the thing, the changes in our culture today that, that talk about gender being fluid and you can be, you know, you can kind of just kind of go back and forth between one or the other depending on how you feel today and how you, you're led or what you what characteristics you feel fit you the best right we would say no that's not how it works you know we have to look at hold up to scripture what our culture teaches and compare it to scripture so that we can say you know these things you know some of these things are harmless right you know if if they want to say that you know, when you go to the store and uh, buy a pair of glasses and, you know, these glasses are considered masculine cuts and or frames and these frames are considered feminine. You know, it's, it's pretty harmless, right, to have those kind of distinctions. But other things are not so harmless. And it, it's those um, questionable and unbiblical and extra biblical ideas that we need to be careful about. Yeah, you know, even talking about culture, um, and I think I've mentioned this before, but my mom was a, a single missionary in, in what was Zaire in the, in the late 60s and early 70s. She got married a little older, and she's talked to me a lot about, um, about how modesty was very different in, in when she was in Africa. Mm -hmm. So um, the women were shirtless but they always wore really long skirts mm -hmm. um, because they saw showing your legs as being immodest. And so some of these things, you know, some of these things do change. Um, and then I guess the missionaries went and s suggested to the women to wear shirts. And they said, well, it's only the prostitutes can that can afford shirts. Oh, so, interesting. So we're a little nervous about doing that. So, um, 
there, there isn't a masculine or feminine piety. Um, you know, I think, I think it's important. Rachel, you already talked about how the church is the bride of Christ. And I, I think of so many different scriptures where we see, you know, both, um, you know, God's love for us is like a, a mother's love of her newborn baby. You know, we, we see things like this throughout um, scripture. And, and Paul talks about it that he that his love for them was like the the love of a mom towards a, their nursing children, right? That they treated them gently, like, right? And, you know, those are that's not an inappropriate analogy. So one of the things, because I I realized even from our our last week's episode, unfortunately, sometimes people make assumptions or misrepresent what we were. I wanted to kind of talk about what we're not saying. Mm-hmm. Um, we aren't saying that there are not differences between us that play out in our churches because there are. Of course. I am um, a woman and I worship as a woman and that's going to look different in, in ways from the ways that my husband worships. Um, but we're, we're called to the same, the same worship. You know, we, we listen to the scripture, we hear, uh, hear the sermons, we, we pray, we sing hymns and we do this together in church we're called to obedience and some, some of that will look different if you're a married woman or a married man, or if you're a child, Rachel, you have a quote from your book, I think would would be helpful. When I summed up at the end of talking about the differences between us as men and women, uh, and I'm not denying that there are differences between us as men and women. um, What I say is, you know, without denying the differences between women and men, the Bible focuses on our similarities um, as as we discuss in the book, we are co-laborers, which means we are united in creation and in Christ. Um, we are all made in the image of God. Our human nature is united in our creation and represented in Adam, and it's fully represented in Christ's humanity. And Christ is the only hope for both men and women. We have one mediator, one savior, one gospel, and one way of salvation. We are independent, interdependent men and women, and made to serve each other. And the world seeks to divide what God's brought together. And unfortunately, the church often follows suit. I, I've sometimes thought that some of these things are actually more of a worldly reaction mm-hmm. than they are a Christian one. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Especially after reading your book. But, I <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, it, it, I, did, I do think so. I think that, um, and it's especially true right now, as as conservatives, if you will, uh, in in our world and in our culture, uh, so much is under attack. The meaning of marriage, the the definition of men and women, the meaning of gender, and um, just so many things that we can speak from from scripture to say, you know, this is what marriage should be. This is you know, there are, God made us male and female, you know, the things that we can, questions that we can answer solidly from scripture that, that are under fire. And it's tempting to look to various culturally conservative ideas and beliefs to, to bolster our arguments from scripture. But really we need to go back to scripture and, and stick with what scripture says and not try to, to build up hedges and, and lists beyond that that end up um, being unbiblical or extra biblical and adding burdens onto people. 
That was so well said and exactly what I was thinking of, because I think there is a tendency to come up with these extra biblical rules in reaction to some things that are unbiblical that we Mm -hmm. see in our culture. And I'll I'll give an example, and there's people that will disagree with me. Um, So in many public schools, um, there is some very um, disturbing things. And so then we have the the homeschool movement that now says homeschooling is the only option for Christians. And um, homeschooling may be a wise option for Christians, but we have to be really careful to not say, okay, now it is a sin if you do not homeschool. Right. For instance. Um, And there's lots of examples like that. There's a lot of ideas out there. I see them on social media all the time where Christians are coming out saying, this is a black and white thing. This is the way it is. Um, there's no other option for Christians. And and maybe that thing may be wise, but we have to be really careful making these strong assertions that this is the only way. It's black and white. And if scripture does not. Yeah, exactly. Um we should be very careful about laying burdens on each other. And there's so many, there's so many different ideas. I will see this all the time. For instance, um, only um, the women should be changing the diapers of the baby. You know, I, when I had a baby, um, when I had a newborn, my husband and I worked together. I would be up nursing and he would, um, you know, I'm still recovering from delivering a baby and, and he would change the diaper in the middle of the night. That didn't make him less masculine because he was changing the diaper in the middle of the night. Um, now, nursing the baby is something only I can do because I'm a woman. Right. Um, but changing the diaper is something that we both can do. There is no verse that says husbands cannot help care for their children. <laughs> no, in, in our house too, right? many things like that. And, you know, as you said, like you, I have all boys. So the work around the house that we do is it's all hands on deck and it's done based on who has the ability. My, my 10 year old doesn't have the ability that his 16 year old brother does. So he isn't asked to do all the same things, but you know, they, they do laundry, they do yard work, they do the dishes, they help cook, you know, they do whatever is necessary in the house to keep the house running and to help with the work that there is. Um, And, you know, that's just part of living together as people. We have to work together and we have to take care of each other. And I also have all sons and it's the same way. And I think that's a really good picture for what the church should look like, that we work together in that way. And, you know, anyone that has a family, you know, that, um, And I don't even know why, like, in a home, it's like um, uh, taking the trash out and mowing the lawn is seen as men's work, and these other things are seen as women's work. I mean, my boys do all of it. You know, they help. We we all work together as a family to do these things, like Rachel described in in her family. But the church should run that way, too. Right. I agree. So, well, hopefully this was helpful um, for everyone. Uh, I think it's a... I think it's a, an important topic because of the way it's being talked about out there with books and, and various articles and and also because it, this is the sort of thing that's being practiced in many churches. And, you know, one of the things I had wanted to say um, or earlier that I had neglected to is there there is a lot of churches where there are issues. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of 
um, churches out there that aren't teaching theology to men or women um, that have fluffy sermons and um, mm-hmm. not the best music and, and things like that. And when we were talking earlier about why men aren't going to church, and there may be many, many reasons, but you know, we, we don't deny that there is a lot of stuff. I do. One thing I love about um, being reformed is we do have some of these things just laid out in our, in our confessions. And that's what I would always encourage you to go back to. I, I took time this week to read the Westminster Confession, um, the sections on worship. So I will encourage that. Well, thanks, Rachel. It was fun. And we will see you next week.